before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. What might Meghan and Harry have learnt from Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson? In this podcast, The Critic's political editor, Graeme Stewart, talks to Alexander Lahman, author of The Crown in Crisis, Countdown to the Abdication, about how Edward VIII was manoeuvred off the throne, whether Wallace really was as bad as she has been painted, and how the House of Windsor adapts and endures. Alexander Lahman, the abdication of King Edward VIII was 84 years ago. A lot is known about it. A lot has been written about it. No one who was involved in it is still alive. What prompted you to write The Crown and Crisis? Well, originally, I was thinking about writing a book about Edward VIII's lawyer, Walter Monckton. Monckton was somebody who was intimately involved in the abdication crisis. In fact, you might even have called him the architect of the abdication because he was the person who was able to find a path through the absolutely tortuous machinations that it needed. As I researched more about Monckton and his involvement in the crisis, it seemed to me that there was time for an entirely new take on the abdication because there hadn't been a major book about it for nearly 20 years. And a lot of the books that had been written had not had access to the full papers for the Royal Archives. There's a lot of new material which I found, including an absolutely sensational discovery, which we'll get onto in a moment, from the Balliol College archives about the attempted assassination of Edward VIII. So the more I looked into it, the more it seemed to me that actually now, especially in this time of royal ructions, there really was an appetite for a new book about the abdication. And what I thought was, but can I make it suspenseful? Can I make it gripping? Can I write a book that somebody who thinks they know all about the abdication or thinks they know nothing about the abdication will think again and be quite surprised by it and hopefully interested? Well, uh, as it happens, your timing couldn't have been better given the uh, abdication of Harry from the royal family. We'll talk about Harry and Meghan shortly, but I just want to uh, explore a few of the interesting themes of your book. Uh, And first of all, something you've just referenced a moment ago, uh, there was an assassination attempt, one that uh, was certainly news to me. Yes, I mean, it was it was a complete surprise to me as well, because there's a man called George McMahon, who history has hitherto regarded as nothing more than a confused attention seeker, who threw a gun in front of Edward's horse during a, a parade outside Buckingham Palace. And as I said, in every other biography, it's merited perhaps a paragraph, no more, as being a very minor incident. But when I was at Balliol, I, I found this document that McMahon wrote called He Was My King, which was a quite a hysterical document I'm not sure how accurate it was but nonetheless what was very interesting was this essentially was an account of his being recruited by the Italian embassy to try and assassinate Edward and and that he was also working as an MI5 paid informant so I went to the National Archives and I cross-referenced it with all of their files and there's a surprising amount of correlation And what I realised quite quickly was, first of all, this is an amazing revelatory story that tells us something that we really didn't know about before. But secondly, it raised the possibility that MI5 had been told over and over again by this man there was going to be an assassination attempt on the king, and they did nothing to stop it, which was either down to arrogance on their part, or it was because they were quite happy to see him assassinated. And knowing that, I mean, knowing that the security services held the king of England 
in such low regard that they were quite happy just to stand back and let him do it. Made me think, ah, so he, you know, a few months into his reign, this was a man who was really not taken seriously as king. And the, the idea that he could even be done away with is it's a provocative one, but it's a fascinating one. Well, I'm, I'm wondering whether it's, it's cock-up uh, or conspiracy. I'm also wondering, let, let, let's assume that the, the would-be assassin's tale is, you know, is, is true. Um, what, what, why the Italians would have wanted a uh, shot of, uh, of uh, uh, the man who was to be Edward VIII? Well, that's the, that's the interesting question, because obviously it was Dino Grande who was the ambassador at the time, and he was somebody who was, had strong fascist links with Mussolini, Almost certainly he would have been somebody who had a certain degree of sympathy with Edward, who, of course, if, he, if Edward wasn't a Nazi, he was certainly somebody who was very interested in the Nazis. So you have to ask, would it have been somebody else in the Italian embassy, or would it have been a dissident group of communists and fellow travellers who were essentially using McMahon as a patsy? And that's what I think is more likely, rather than being any kind of official state-sanctioned attempt to get rid of the king, it's much more likely that McMahon had fallen into quite bad company. But these people, seeing that he was easily susceptible, that he could be bribed with drink and quite small sums of money, tried to get him to do this assassination attempt, which, of course, if it had succeeded, would have made his name notorious forever after. But at the actual moment of the assassination, I do not know if either he he bottled it or if it was the intervention of a nearby special constable that stopped it. But I certainly don't believe that the time on the story that he chucked a gun in front of a horse with no intention of firing it is true. Well, it, it's a fascinating uh, what if. Um, I want to come to uh, to Wallace Simpson, uh, the uh, a Baltimore-born woman who was to shake up the monarchy so extraordinarily during 1936. She, she started to become Edward VIII's lover in 1934. Um, Edward becomes obsessed with her, so obsessed with her that when it's a choice between keeping the throne or marrying her, he, he chooses marrying her. Um, her. Her appeal doesn't come over very strongly, not just in your account, but in other accounts that, that I've read. What was her uh, appeal to, uh, to, to Edward VIII? And also, has she had a bit of a rough press, perhaps even a sadly misogynistic press o- over the years? Well, to answer the first question first, I mean, to be absolutely candid about it, what I believe is that Wallace Simpson had a sadomasochistic relationship with Edward, which essentially required her to be a dominatrix. And I think for all, all the things I've read suggested that Edward was somebody who was not interested in conventional sexual activity. He was more interested in being sexually dominated. Most people who he'd come across, I think, had some reluctance to do this because they were well brought up English women and normally married ones to boot. Whereas Wallace was somebody who I think would happily have gone along with his desires because she was a dominant character anyway. And you can see, I mean, there's an account that I have in my book of Diana Cooper being on this cruise in the summer and seeing how she treated him. And she was obviously behaving towards him in this incredibly disrespectful way. But you do wonder whether this was, in fact, something that it was a kind of role play between the two of them, that he enjoyed being this submissive character and she enjoyed being dominant. So you can see that. You can see that the dynamic between the two of them was certainly one that he was obsessed by her. 
And in terms of how she's been regarded by posterity, I do feel she's had a rough press because I actually sat down to write the book with an exceptionally dim view of her. And as I went through her letters and I went through her ghostwritten autobiography and I looked at all the contemporary documents, I began to feel quite sorry for her because obviously she was somebody with an eye on the prize. She was somebody who was interested in money and fine things and so on. But you could also clearly see she was attempting to get out of her relationship with Edward when she realised she was in over her head because I think she genuinely had a great affection for her second husband, Ernest. And there are these very poignant letters that she exchanged with him after the abdication, which they both refer to Edward as Peter Pan. And I think you can see that she was somebody who realised that if she didn't ditch Edward and if she was forced to go off and, you know, not quite into the sunset, but into the darkness with him, but she would forever be tarred as that woman. And that's what she has been tarred as. And so, you know, if you look at the long, long, I mean, she lived for nearly half a century after the abdication. That's an extraordinarily long time to be notorious. And it's very interesting because if you look at the American view of the subject, theirs is a more conventionally romantic view. I mean, they see it often as a great love story between the king and a commoner. Whereas I think in Britain, we're more cynical about it. But I do feel that Wallace has been maligned. Yes, I do agree there is a strong element of misogyny with that. There's also very solid anti-Americanism, which I think was more prevalent then than now. But there's just a sense of her being other. And that, as certain members of the royal family or ex-members of the royal family know, is enough to damn you forever. Well, that, that sense of, of other brings us to, to Meghan and to, to Harry and Meghan. But I, I want to explore... In doing so, a, a parallel which I thought was particularly interesting with your account of the abdication, and that is the extent to which uh, the political establishment, but I don't just mean the Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, I, I also mean uh, the leading figures at court, um, how they wanted to bring matters to a head rapidly. They didn't want the uh, crisis, the brouhaha to... Uh, to go on for any length of time. Uh, and that obviously has a clear parallel with the palace's uh, forcing of the hand, in a way, of, of, uh, of the, the, the Sussexes, uh, uh, Harry and Meghan. Yes, I mean, what you can see in the abdication was that Edward made several mistakes, and the main mistake he made was that he believed that as king he had the right to decide on his abdication as a unilateral decision. And of course, he didn't have that right because he was a, a constitutional monarch. The nature of being a constitutional monarch is that you have to go along with what your prime minister and your government tell you what to do. And he, being a very bloody-minded and independent figure, chafed at this, but there was not a lot he could do about it. Which is why, when you come to look at the story of the abdication, you do realise that, in fact, a lot of what you hear in school, and a lot of, indeed, what's been portrayed in films and TV, is a gross oversimplification of what was actually happening. And what I really wanted to do was to bring the role of Stanley Baldwin to a much more prominent position, because I wanted Baldwin and what Baldwin went through in order to make sure the application could happen to be quite a central thing. Now, of course, a major difference between that and what's happening today is that, as far as I can see, our current Prime Minister has absolutely no relationship with the Sussexes. Indeed, he made a public statement to which he more or less said, well, it's nothing to do with me, I'm going to wash my hands of it. So you can see that 
I mean, because something that I've always found fascinating of a Peter Morgan TV series for Crown is its emphasis on the relationship between politics and royalty. And I wanted to convey something of that in A Crown in Crisis. But today, we have this situation with the Sussexes where Meghan has intentionally or otherwise made herself possibly the least popular woman in England, even though she, of course, is no longer resident in England. And I have been struck just over the course of the last couple of months when I've been talking about the book. I mean, people have essentially said to me, you must hate Meghan. And I've said, why would I hate Meghan? She said, because she's like Wallace Simpson, but worse. And I don't bear personal animosity towards somebody who I've never met, because I think that would be absurd. But I can see that there are parallels between the abdication of 1936 and the quasi-abdication of 2020. Because I think the major parallel is that in both cases, you have this rather weak-willed royal figure who comes into into the orbit of a much stronger world American who has her own ideas as to how things should be and that in both cases it ends up being the American who exerts her well over the member of the royal family but I feel that just as Wallace has often been described in quite misogynistic and indeed quite limiting ways so we can see that the coverage of Meghan Markle I think it's not so much anti-American, it's the faint leavening of racism, coupled with a sense that she should know her place. But then set against all that, I listen to a lot of her public pronouncements and I think, why is nobody telling you what to say? Why is nobody giving you any kind of steer on how inappropriate all of this is? I mean, I saw that video that she and Harry were doing the other day, which essentially was an anti-Trump video, and you think can't you just stay out of politics? Can't you just do something which actually plays to what the strengths you have? I mean, maybe acting again would suit her. Yes, well, of course, there's always a possibility she she was given uh, guidance and chose to chose to ignore it. Um, I mean, an obvious difference, of course, between Meghan and Harry and Edward and Wallace is that Edward was was head of state of a, an empire covering a quarter of the world, and, and Harry isn't ever likely to be head of state um, in, in the UK. Um, but also, I mean, just the, the nature of how we look at monarchy, I think, is, is different now and in the 1930s. I mean, monarchy is still a very popular institution, but it's not held in reverence. Do you, when you look back at the 1930s, do you um, get a sense of uh, monarchy being held in a very different light to it is to how it is today absolutely i mean one of the things i was quite surprised to find out was there was literally no coverage in the, in the newspapers in england at any rate of edward's relationship with wallace because all the powerful press magnates led by lord beaverbrook who's probably the doyen of them were simply able to keep it out of their papers and there was a, an enormous sense of noblesse oblige when it came to the royal family there was an enormous sense that this, I think, was why the abdication rankled so much with so many people. I mean, I was told by somebody that it was quite common in the best households that nobody spoke of it at all for years afterwards, that it was simply as if it had never happened, as if it's almost a bit Orwellian, actually, the idea that George VI had always been king and that there had never been a time that Edward VIII had been king at all. So you can see there that, I mean, how the royal family was regarded in the 1930s was a fascinating look at proto-celebrity because... You have to remember that things like film and music and so on were much less a part of people's lives than they are now. So obviously Edward especially had this glamour to him. I mean, people adored him and you can see, I mean, the fact that there were 
literal protests in his favour when the abdication saga was unfolding. I mean, you've got people standing up in the streets and shouting, "We God save the king, down with Baldwin and the bishops. You've really got a sense that people were frightened of Edward abdicating because there was a sense of what will we do without our beloved king? What, what does the future hold? And if you look at what's happened in the last 84 years and why we've become less reverent towards the royal family, I mean, I find it fascinating that our current queen has been on the throne for such a long time. But none of us have any idea what the future of the monarchy is going to be after that. And you look at Prince Andrew, who seems to be doing his level best to you know, damage the institution he belongs to. You look at Harry and Meghan, who have done as much damage in a completely different way. And you think, are we going to have this quite narrow, dutiful line of succession, first of all through Charles, then through William, and then through his descendants? Or is something going to happen? I mean, I've been quite intrigued about the parallels between Edward and Charles, for instance. I think, you know, both men obviously interested in the company of married women, but both of them sort of, I mean, Edward and Charles have both seen themselves as reformers, but both seen themselves as people who want to meddle in state business. I mean, you look at Charles and his black spider letters and you look at Edward saying to John Reef that he would take over the BBC before he went. So it's the idea, I mean, there's always a sense whenever you're talking about the royal family that it is an institution which cannot change and cannot evolve. It's like this enormous behemoth that can only really go in one direction. But given how everything else in our society seems to change at record speed, you do wonder if it's going to be, especially after the Queen dies, if it will have to evolve and if it will have to be a, a similar level of change as to happened in 1936. Uh, one other change between 36 and now is obviously the role of church. I mean, you mentioned a, a moment ago that some of the protesters had placards saying, down with the bishops. Um, it's a long time uh, since uh, anyone has, has felt the need to put that on a, on a placard in, in, British, uh, in British history. Um, is, is there, was there a sense that uh, you know, divorce obviously was much more rare in, in the 1930s, in Wallace's case, she was, you know, would be twice divorced. Um, it, is, is that a, a major difference in a way in which not many people really cared about the fact that, um, that, that Meghan was, was, was divorced? Well, I think you go back to the controversy with Prince Charles and Camilla, don't you? The idea that he, I think, would have rather married her than Diana, but of course she was a married woman, so it was always impossible. And you look at the idea that, I mean, not that long ago, I mean, it probably, certainly in the last 30 years, I think divorce was something that had more stigma attached to it. But certainly in 1936, I mean, the idea that Wallace was twice divorced, she would have been seen as absolutely toxic as a result, because from a, a religious perspective, you simply didn't get divorced unless you absolutely had to. But what was interesting researching and writing the book was that Cosmo Lang, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, he comes across incredibly badly. He comes across badly in every single bit of research that I did. He comes across badly in the book because he was somebody who loathed Edward for not being religious and for not having any kind of interest in the church. And he very much felt that he did not want to be the man at his coronation performing the sacred rite of consecrating him which is fair enough. But I did also feel that he was motivated by personal animosity towards the king. And I've got in a couple of letters where he essentially says he is a dreadful man, he, has, he is an alcoholic, he's a drug taker and so on. And you think, well, 
that's not actually borne out by anybody else's accounts of what was going on. And you do get the sense, especially in that notorious sermon that he preached after Edward left the country, that he had this very personal grudge against him and that he was trying as far as he could to be this rather vindictive and rather unchristian figure. But I do feel that also, I mean, I was talking to somebody else doing another podcast about this with, and he said that he, his view of the abdication which he'd always been taught at school, was that essentially it was a matter of religion, that Edward, as head of the Church of England, would not be allowed to marry a twice-divorced woman. So that was why he had to abdicate. And obviously that's the kind of grotesque oversimplification that you're taught at school because it's quicker. But I do feel that the religious aspect is an important one, because I do feel that you have to understand how church going was still playing a key role in people's lives in 1936. The idea that there really was a sense that Britain was a nation of churchgoers and the Church of England was important to them. And so Edward's complete lack of any interest in that, I think, was something that some people couldn't actually deal with very well. One other big difference from the 1930s is uh, the nature of Europe at the time, uh, which is uh, many of the countries are going fascist. Old institutions are being undermined. There's obviously communism as well. And uh, you know, here we have this institution central to uh, the British Constitution, seemingly teetering for a moment. You, you quote a wonderful um, uh, uh, note from Queen Mary, who, of course, is um, Edward's mother, the, the Dowager Queen, the Queen Mother. She's still alive. Uh, and, and she says um, she takes some comfort from the fact that it was all managed, managed in such a dignified way the things are beginning to settle down after that terrible upheaval. In any other country, there would have been riots. Thank God people did not lose their heads. Yes, I love that too. It's the authentic voice of conservatism and tradition speaking. And it's so rare that you get something ex- expressed as explicitly and indeed thematically helpfully as that. So it's, it's a great letter. But yes, I mean, if you look at what's happening, and certainly what I tried to do as a structural thing with a book was to bring in the Nazis and Ribbentrop as the ambassador at the absolute beginning of the book, so that the reader knows what's happening, they know what's going to happen, and the importance of, because obviously Ribbentrop was told by Hitler explicitly, bring me the English alliance, because Hitler actually had misunderstood the nature of constitutional monarchy as well, which maybe implies that it's a much harder thing to get your head around than most people can understand but certainly Europe was on the precipice in in 1936 there was most people believed that some sort of conflict was inevitable and the idea that England had this king who was dallying you can make the argument of course that essentially Edward was an irrelevant sideshow and the, the nature of monarchy didn't matter but I think that both for symbolic reasons but also for practical reasons it was enormously important that the monarchy of a country wasn't just allowed to vacillate because as I said I mean the idea that Edward had these Nazi sympathies and indeed in 1937 he went out to Germany and he saw Hitler and he and Wallace were photographed with Hitler that was extraordinarily embarrassing for England and you you have to wonder did he do it because he was naive or did he do it because he wanted to make a deliberate political point and yes I mean certainly you look at what would have happened in other countries if there'd been a similar kind of upheaval And in some countries, there would have been shooting in in the streets and there would have been a kind of armed revolution. I mean, look at what happened in Russia 20 years before. But the important thing is to remember that there is, because of 
Baldwin because of the way in which the situation was managed. There was never a serious point at which the monarchy was going to be overthrown. I mean, a letter that I wasn't able to quote for copyright reasons was that Bob Boothby actually wrote to one of his friends to say, if this goes on much longer, we're not going to have to worry about monarchy anymore because it won't exist. That's quite a good dramatic statement, but I'm not sure it's true. But on the other hand, I mean, the question that you have to ask is, what would it take for the monarchy to be destroyed? I mean, what event is so seismic that you would end up with a republic? And I think the answer is abdication is going to come about as close as you can get. Well, of course, there was the advantage that uh, there was a... Uh, an alternative in the Duke of York, who became George VI, you know, stammering, dutiful George VI. If Edward had not had uh, siblings who were capable or, or suitable, or indeed existed, if he'd been a, if he'd been an only child, that might have created a rather difficult issue. And I also just wonder to what extent, if the political establishment had held Edward in higher regard, they might have perhaps, Baldwin and his cabinet colleagues might have found a way of allowing him to keep the throne and in some shape or form marry Wallace. Well, I mean, what's very interesting for me is the role of Winston Churchill in all of this, because it's very hard, I think, given Churchill's legendary reputation to go back to what was widely regarded as one of Churchill's mistakes. But he was incredibly and unfailingly loyal to Edward VIII. And in fact, he believed that he could have postponed the entire crisis, that he saw no reason why Edward as monarch should be forced off his throne. And he also believed, I mean, he said, let the king have his cutie, which rather seems to imply that he was open to the idea, as a lot of people were, that Edward could continue to maintain Wallace as a mistress, but that essentially it would be impossible for for her to be his wife. And Churchill was somebody who I think he was a very intelligent man who could see an argument from several sides. But there is also the possibility that he didn't actually know Edward nearly as well as he thought. And that what he assumed was a kind of infatuation was something which defined Edward to his absolute core. And so I think that the idea that if Edward had, because at the start of his reign, I mean, something that, I mean, I think it's fair to say the Crown of Crisis is not a pro Edward VIII book. But I kept trying to make the case in his favour because, you know, ultimately, like <laughs> as if I was putting the case forward in court, you've got to look at why people liked him and why he had this charisma. And you can see, you know, he would go into meetings and people would walk out impressed by him. They would think, OK, well, he's, he's young. He's not as experienced as his father, George V. But he's still got a presence and he's still got an interest. I mean, he wasn't very intelligent. But then, of course, members of the royal family never really have been. So that's something that you just take it as a given. But I do feel that a lot of the difficulty came with courtiers like Alec Harding and Tommy Lassells, who had this enormous personal antipathy towards him because they'd seen his behaviour close hand. They'd seen just how horrible he could be to his staff. And I do think then you have the idea that people wanted him gone out of personal dislike as any kind of constitutional issues. And Wallace became a kind of pawn between these people and between Edward. Well, I I wonder if Harry and Meghan had read your book, whether they would have done things any differently. What do you think are the main lessons for monarchy today as not just how it has handled Harry and Meghan's 
uh, departure. But uh, in, in the years moving forward, if Harry and Meghan um, continue as they are at the moment with their you know, living in, in Beverly Hills or, or at any rate somewhere abroad with a sort of rival, not a court exactly, but a, a rival centre of, of, of attention, what should um, both Harry and Meghan's camp and uh, the, the rest of the House of Windsor take from uh, the abdication crisis? Well, I think the important thing to realise was that after he abdicated, Edward and Wallace went off to France and they became essentially citizens of the world and citizens of nowhere. And they didn't have fixed roots. They were constantly drifting. They were very much people who were buffeted by change and by other occasions. But crucially, I mean, because somebody asked me, you know, did Edward have any kind of role in later life? Did he, was he on the board of things? Did he have any kind of you know, made up title. And apart from being governor of the Bahamas in World War II, he had absolutely no public role. He had absolutely no public duties. Everything he did was for his own enrichment and for profit. And I think that that is in large part why people have looked down on him and Wallace, because if he'd shown any kind of real dedication to public service, and he'd actually thought, okay, I'm not king anymore, but I'm somebody who can make a difference as a kind of ambassadorial figure, that's possible. But I think it's a mixture of the fact that his brother, George VI, utterly distrusted him because he lied, Edward lied to him about his financial arrangements, which led to all sorts of difficulties later. And the fact also that Britain had gone through this horrendous world war where it was felt that Edward wasn't perhaps as much on the side of his home country as he should have been. And you can see suspicion and you can see a sense of mutual antipathy. And then you fast forward to today and you look at the relationship between Harry and William, which is by all accounts dreadful and non-existent now. And you think to yourself, if I was William, who I think it's fair to say is regarded as a dutiful figure who is not going to do anything dramatic, you know, obviously we don't know when he's going to become king, but I think we can assume that if he does become king, he will be a very steady George VI figure. The one I find interesting, though, is Charles. And, you know, what's going to happen when he becomes king? I mean, is he going to be a sort of a steady George VI or is he going to be a much more impetuous and rash Edward VIII? And that's what I think we should all be watching because I'm not sure he even knows himself. Well, I found the crime and crisis a fascinating read, so fascinating that I, I really want to know what happens next. It, it ends with uh, Edward going off into a sort of form of exile on board HMS Fury, is there going to be a sequel? Um, watch this space is all I can say. <laughs> uh, how very teasing. Well, on <laughs> on that uh, on that bombshell, uh, we must uh, leave it. But Alexander Larman, author of The Crown and Crisis, Countdown to the Abdication, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Graham. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.